It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. It's infrastructure week outside my house. I thought it was infrastructure week inside your house. It's infrastructure week inside my house too, but I think it literally might be infrastructure week outside my house in that they're replacing the gas lines. I have no idea if that's actually like a thing that was uh, incentivized in uh, the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill. But yeah, it's definitely infrastructure week. Infrastructure week has finally arrived in this part of Northwest DC. Infrastructure week is a, it's a state of mind. Really. Oh, it's definitely, it's definitely like a state of, a state of being. It's like Shark Week. It's a state of constant anticipation. It's like the second coming. <laughs> You're just like constantly waiting for it. And one day maybe it'll come and we're preparing our children for it. As a toddler parent, like my child's dream is for infrastructure week to happen all the time. Yeah, because you're, you're, he's probably just old enough to like appreciate giant trucks being super, super cool. Is that right? Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, he certainly can like talk about them now, which is pretty funny. My one and a half year old has taken to this weird habit where I think he's just discovered that our car, a 2013 dirty brown CRV, so not a particularly luxurious car, is the coolest thing in the world. And he walks around our garage in little circles, like stroking it and kind of touching, oh, exploring so in a way cute. that I'm like, this is really aggressive. It's kind of like, you know, a like creepy older guy would walk into like a sports car garage be like oh yeah sexy runs a single <laughs> finger down the side that's what my son is doing to our old suv it's a little strange but we'll, we'll see what you're saying scott is that your toddler child is going through his midlife crisis right now basically basically yes but it's a little bit misplaced <laughs> he's yearning for midlife with that crv that is my that is my midlife vehicle of choice could be worse could be a minivan it basically is I don't know if you saw the 2015 CRVs. They took the minivan sex, sex, sexual uh, appeal, uh, you know, kind of consciousness and just crammed an SUV uh, <laughs> kind of frame inside of it. It's, it's not great. Very practical, though. Easy to parallel park. A lot of cargo capacity. No regrets. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security Molly's Revenge. Because we are here this week by we, of course, I mean myself, one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, here with my other two co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are joined once again by our wonderful Brookings and Lawfare colleague, Molly Reynolds. Molly, thank you for joining us again and wreaking your horrible revenge on all of us for your last appearance. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. It's good to be here. <laughs> I don't remember what happened during your last appearance. Yeah, what's happening? I don't know either. And now I'm convinced that something terrible happened. We're going to fight about Congress again. That's what's going to happen. Oh, sure. I, I'm always up Mazars for that. may have come up at some point. Who knows? <laughs> the eternal debate. Uh, but we'll see. But we're so excited to have you back with us today for what we are calling the On the Topic of Rational Security Edition in honor of the naming conventions of our favorite committee of congressional investigators, which I know you have taken a particular interest in, Molly, to talk over this week's three big topics in the news, two of which fall squarely in your lane, and a third one that we're throwing in for good measure. For our first topic, disquiet on the Eastern Front. 
While it has been beaten back in most of the rest of Ukraine, Russia's efforts to hold secessionist eastern Ukraine are proving more resilient and producing what some are calling a war of attrition. What does this tell us about what the next phase of the conflict is likely to look like, and what does it mean for U.S. policy? Topic two, it's time to play the music. It's time to light the lights. It's time to meet the suspects on primetime Thursday night. At long last, the January 6th committee is set to have its first public hearing later this week during evening primetime. What are we expecting from the hearings and what should we be on the lookout for? And topic three, an exercise of prosecutorial concession. Last week, the Justice Department opted to move forward with the prosecution of one former Trump administration official for refusing to cooperate with the January 6th committee's investigation, but declined to prosecute two other former officials who had also been referred by the committee for contempt. Why did the Justice Department take a different tack in these cases, and what does it mean for congressional investigations moving forward? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. The war in Ukraine now has been going on for many months, and after Russia's initial goal of sort of a shock and awe campaign across the entire country, it seems like the Russian military has changed strategy to focus on the Donbass, the eastern region of Ukraine, which has sort of greater cultural, historical, political ties uh, with the current borders of Russia. Now, interestingly, it seems like Russia's putting up quite a fight there. Um, as you mentioned at the beginning, Scott, there's been some reporting, though, as well in the New York Times and elsewhere on guerrilla attacks within Russian-controlled territory in Ukraine, sort of suggesting that, you know, this isn't going to be a situation perhaps where Russia is able to take the Donbass and hold it easily. Uh, not that I think anyone really thought that at this point in the war, but that this is going to be a sort of nasty, really drawn-out conflict. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has said that Ukraine is not going to give up any territory, that they they are going to fight for all the country's land. Also worth noting uh, is that in at the very end of May, uh, President Biden published an op-ed in the New York Times announcing that the United States was going to be providing Ukraine with, uh, quote, more advanced rocket systems and munitions that will enable them to more precisely strike key targets on the battlefield in Ukraine. So that the U.S. is sort of continuing its commitment to Ukraine and perhaps even cranking things up. With that in mind, we wanted to just sort of check in on where things seem to be headed. Scott, let me turn it over to you. What do you make of these developments? Well, it's definitely, in my mind, the sign of a move to a different phase in this conflict. I think a lot of people knew the fight over eastern Ukraine was going to be different than the rest of the country. A lot of people, other than perhaps Vladimir Putin and some other folks involved in the initial Russian decisions about how they approach this conflict. If you recall back to February before the actual invasion started, a lot of people, including me, although I was channeling, frankly, people who follow these issues a lot more closely than I do, posited that if Russia was going to do something, the thing that makes the most sense would have been something more limited in eastern Ukraine because there are already secessionist movements there. There are already Russian sympathizers there. There's already a kind of established effort um, that would, would be easier for them to back and expand and hold parts of that territory. Both it'd be easier to sell to the international community, might not meet a strong opposition. Even Ukrainian government might tacitly be forced to accept it to stymie off a broader conflict in other parts of the country. Instead, we saw Putin pursue a much broader offensive, which Essentially, the Ukrainians have beat back effectively at this point in almost every other part of the country. There's still active hostilities ongoing, but not 
you know, massively large t- holding of territory, not the occupation of towns that we saw a few months ago. Instead, Russia really seems to be refocusing on this eastern region as the fallback option, as the consolation prize for this military effort. So it could come out with something that looks like a military victory. The dynamics are not favorable to Russia's position in terms of the momentum, but I think there's this danger we have in conflicts like this where they where we reset expectations and we tend to see this pendulum swing back and forth about how we think a conflict is going and how we set our expectations for the next phase. Michael Kaufman, who's kind of become the premier Russian military watcher throughout this conflict, had a great op-ed that kind of channels this, this kind of view on things in The Economist that I highly endorse people to take a look at. And he raised the point that, you know, we've kind of now over the last few months convinced ourselves that Russian military is actually quite weak. The fact that it's been beaten so handily in a lot of Ukraine, and particularly with support from Western military, has a lot of people feeling very, very bullish on their ability to beat back the Russian military. But he makes the point that all conflicts are very context-specific. And I would take that lesson to suggest that the conflict in eastern Ukraine is actually just different contextually than in western Ukraine. There are reasons why it's going to be a much harder fight probably for the Ukrainians, certainly for the Western government supporting the Ukrainians to the extent they're involved, which is still quite limited, primarily to providing forms of support and intelligence, and much more favorable ground for the Russians in terms of access to supply routes, ability to hold more friendly territory more effectively. So, you know, you really are getting to say of a war of attrition, which in its kind of purest economic model form is a case where you have two parties kind of holding out, both knowing that they are accepting a lot of pain and violence from this particular type of situation, counting on them having a higher tolerance for that status quo, for that ongoing cost than the other side, hoping the other party side will eventually be drawn out to concede. It's not clear to me which side has more tolerance for that level of pain. And that can be really tricky. I think this has led to a lot of the conversations we've heard recently that have proven quite controversial in some circles about, well, should there be an effort being made to push uh, Zelensky or at least encourage some thinking by Zelensky and others around him in the Ukrainian government to start thinking about concessions, moving towards negotiations? What could you do to end the immediate stage of the conflict, even if it means ceding territory? I think a lot of people have pushed back on that, understandably from a lot of perspectives, saying, look, they should, nobody should be pressuring them certainly to concede territory from a war of hostility by Russia that Russia has not won yet. But I think a lot of that nervousness is kind of primed for the fact that this war is about to get really different. And and the Ukrainians might need to think about this war getting very different. And it's entering a phase where if this war becomes much more drawn out, much more static, at least from the outside perspective, Western interests may wane. The cost of the war may get very, very high. Cost of providing additional assistance may get very, very high. Political cycles will pass and uh, the degree of political support we see among Western governments if this drags out for a year or two might change a lot. Two or three years, we might have a different president of the United States who may not take the same position as President Biden on this. So there are reasons to begin thinking of this as a different strategic posture for the Ukrainians and for the Russians and begin thinking about different sort of strategic moves there, although it's still quite early. I think it's particularly too early to start drawing any firm conclusions in those regards. But it, it does suggest that there's just different dynamics around this new phase of the conflict than what we've seen over the last few months up until now. I think one notable point, and, and here I'm going to go a little bit meta about our own coverage about the war in Ukraine, is I think a particular danger for the Ukrainians is that the rest of the world will just lose interest. And, and I think it's notable that when the war first started, we had as our first topic on this podcast, something about Ukraine for the first, I think, 
two straight months, right? Which I think was totally appropriate. And then we missed a week or two. And then we missed a couple of more weeks because the fighting had entered into a different phase. There was less uh, kind of dramatic changes on the ground, but also because other things were happening and things were happening in American politics and uh, in other parts of the world. Now, again, I think that's appropriate, but I do think it's, it's interesting to reflect on the fact that the sort of wall-to-wall coverage that the Ukrainians got and that benefited them so much and that, frankly, they earned right at the beginning is not going to last forever. And, and so, you know, a tricky thing for, for Zelensky and the Ukrainians in general is to sort of game out the different possibilities and, and say, well, you know, do we try to make some kind of uh, concessions now while we still have a lot of global support, while the economic toll of cutting Russia out of the global economic system, increasingly out of the global energy system is not too great on especially the Europeans, you know, or do we keep on 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 pushing? I mean, I can imagine a situation in which the Ukrainians, especially if the European Union and NATO really reach out with you know, financial assistance uh, and potentially even membership in, in some of these organizations to say, look, you know, we will um, effectively cede the Donbass. We will not formally say that we are allowing the, those regions to become uh, autonomous. But we all sort of understand that Ukraine for the foreseeable future is the 80% of it that is currently within the control of Kiev and that we will kind of temporize and it may take many years and a change in the you know, Russian regime or some unexpected event uh, for the reunification to happen down the line. But it, it does not seem particularly plausible that the Ukrainian government will regain control over these regions without devastating them in, in the process. Because uh, the Russians, although they did not prosecute the war particularly well, are now in a position of being quite entrenched in the region, and they have shown themselves completely capable of uh, a level of brutality that you know we've seen in in different points in this war, but that could really um, accelerate dramatically if the Ukrainians try to um, aggressively take back the Donbas. Which again is not to say that they shouldn't try. I mean, if I were Ukrainian and I was fighting for my homeland, I might feel very very differently. Um, but that does seem like uh, a really tricky situation that that Zelensky finds himself in. I mean, when it comes to the question of various governments' commitments to Ukraine, so as I mentioned with President Biden's op-ed, it seems like the, or excuse me, guest essay in the New York Times, uh, it seems like the administration is sort of doubling down on its position and that it's going to back Ukraine and it's not going to push the Ukrainian government into a diplomatic solution. Molly, I'm, I'm curious if you have a sense of how things are looking in in Congress right now. So over the last few weeks, um, or perhaps earlier than that, the Congress passed a huge multi-billion dollar aid package to Ukraine. At the beginning of the conflict, members of Congress were kind of falling over themselves to be more hawkish than now um, in sending support. Do you see any signs of interest fading there, or are the administration and Congress sort of on the same page? Yeah, so I actually think the thing that's interesting to watch in the congressional context here is less the um, the the Democrats. Um, I imagine you know there is some spectrum of opinion among the Democratic caucus in kind of how aggressively they want to be supporting Ukraine. But as long as I think President Biden is out there leaning quite forward on this, like the Democrats in Congress are likely sort of stand behind him. But on the Republican side of the aisle, you actually have seen this as a place where Leader McConnell in the Senate has really tried to like take a different 
attack than some of his more isolationist conference members and certainly more isolationist members of the House Republican Conference. So it's about three weeks ago, um, McConnell himself went to Ukraine, um, took some congress- some other um, congressional Republicans with him, and has really just tried to like stake out this position that no, despite what you might hear some Republicans, um, even some like pretty Trumpy Republicans saying about America first, that sort of thing, like we are going to continue to support the Ukrainian effort. And perhaps, you know, he and some like-minded congressional Republicans are going to keep trying to sort of outflank Biden and say, like, we need to be doing even more than the Biden administration is doing, or like the Biden administration was not sort of pushing on them for not being more active sooner. And so I think, obviously, when you're in what we might call the deep minority. So when the other party controls the House, the Senate, and the White House, your divisions within the Republican Party are perhaps a little less consequential than if they had the majority. Um, I do think it's interesting um, as, again, we sort of keep trying to imagine what the Congressional Republican Party is going to look like um, in in the medium term. I think it's really astute about some of the dynamics around this. And the only thing I would add to it is that you see an interesting conversation. I actually wrote a piece on the other week uh, with Shemen Keitner about this debate over taking Russian assets to try and support Ukraine. There's a lot of interesting legal aspects of it that we delve into that piece, but that's not actually what I want to talk about here. What's interesting about it is that the fact that there seems to be this like idea that I think has a lot of policy credibility saying that Ukraine is going to get a dramatic sum of money to reconstructionally from this conflict and then frankly to sustain itself economically potentially if this is an enduring conflict at a level of magnitude above what they are currently getting and particularly non-military assistance. We're talking about just straight up economic and, and financial assistance and that there's not a strong appetite for poning up to pay for it in the U.S. Congress or elsewhere. And that's actually true of other Western allies as well. Now, part of it is because this is early. We haven't really hit the crisis point yet. Sometimes you need a forcing mechanism to really put these things on the agenda and get people to take the political risk to ask for it. If Biden asks for it, then the dynamics will change around it. He hasn't done that yet. But I think people start turning to these assets because they are politically more you know, easier to swallow options because you're just taking the assets of a bad guy. It doesn't cost you anything and giving it to the good guy. seems like a very obvious thing to do from a moral perspective. And a lot of people, I think, have trouble understanding why there might be legal obstacles to that, although there are a variety of legal challenges. I'm not sure it's totally impossible, actually, but it raises a lot of legal questions. And those sort of dynamics, I think, is a sign of more to come. I mean, this assistance does come with risk politically, and it comes at a cost. And those costs are going to pile up over time. Um, And eventually, it's going to get a little bit more stressful for people, both in Western Europe and here. And on top of that is the economic costs. I mean, we see President Biden facing really, really, and the Democrats facing a real uphill challenge politically. A lot of that is because the state of the global economy, a lot of that actually does have ties back to the Ukraine conflict. I don't know if it was avoidable, uh, unless sort of completely conceding to Russia because of its role in the global economy and particularly in the energy sector, but you know, they're not unrelated. And those costs are also going to become, continue to pile up in the weeks and months to come. Scott, I, I'm actually curious for you to talk more about what the legal impediments are to using Russian funds to, to fund the Ukrainians and and not just sort of the legal, the doctrinal challenges, let's say, but you know, whether or not the benefits of that move would be outweighed by what I assume are the kind of standard rule of law objections. I mean, I do understand that, you know, just because you have a bad regime doesn't mean you necessarily want to take its money, right? I mean, there's a kind of a version of this debate that's been playing out with uh, what to do with um, the Afghanistan government 
uh, funds, given that the Taliban is now in control. And there are arguments being made that like the Taliban's bad, but the Afghan people need that money more than the Taliban is bad. So we shouldn't take it. This does not strike me as, uh, and I'm coming from this as a sort of not an expert in this area of law. This does not strike me as a real comparable matter. I mean, Russia launched a completely unprovoked war of aggression against Ukraine. Why shouldn't we take them for all they're worth? You know, it's a fair question. Uh, the legal arguments are really complicated. I don't want to derail things too too far uh, this late in the game. You know, all I'll flag at this point is that the United States plays a central role in the global economy, particularly as a depository of kind of the lion's share of global central bank assets. That's not quite true, but a predominant a preponderance of global central bank assets that gives it a lot of its economic leverage around over the world. And a lot of that is because it has very strong rules about protecting those assets from different types of attachment or diversion for other potential purposes, of which there is constant pressure to do in Congress from other quarters. For a lot of reasons, victims of terrorism compensation being the largest one, but not the only one. And so I think there's a lot of concern that from a the, the legal policy nexus is that pulling back and ignoring a lot of the international legal protections, rescinding a lot of the domestic legal protections would compromise that status is kind of one of the, the bigger underlying policy concerns. There are also constitutional questions about the extent you can do it. Um, some people have suggested there aren't because states don't get due process rights under the constitution, but um, state agencies instrumental that itself is debatable and not necessarily settled by the Supreme Court. State agencies and instrumentalities like Russia's central bank sometimes do get due process rights. Depends on how independent they are of state control, and I, I'm not sure whether Russia's central bank would be disqualified from due process rights or not. Um, I don't believe that question's ever been presented. I don't know the facts well enough, but it's not a, it's not a straightforward question saying that there aren't constitutional limits here either from a takings clause or due process clause perspective, from from my view anyway. Although people have argued to the contrary, I encourage people to check out that piece for for a deep, deeper dive on that. And my piece on the Afghan Central Banks debate, which I wrote a few months earlier than that. Scott, Scott, it's almost as if you used to think about issues of international law within a a governmental context. Perhaps. (laughs) Very boring, (laughs) very dry context. That doesn't make good podcast fodder, but (laughs) but it's a great read, I promise. (laughs) Is there there any likelihood that this is actually going to happen? I mean, one thing that's puzzled me about this whole debate is that there are uh, some heated views, but has the administration given any indication that it's going to take this path? Or is it just like a contingency in case the money runs out? No, uh, there's definitely serious talk about it. The administration has suggested that they'd be interested in doing this if it were legally available, potentially. Um, You know, I think they've made fairly guarded remarks about it, but haven't come out against it. Treasury Secretary Yellen has come out and said, right now, there's no legal authority to do it, which is true. You would need some sort of congressional authorization. Current statutes don't get you there, um, is my reading of the law. And I think it's the right one. The, you know, I think big question here is, what are the conditions that might lead to this? Look, if you get an international judgment against Russia, which is possible from uh, ICJ proceedings, European Court of Human Rights proceedings, although the latter tend to give very limited reparations, my understanding, uh, and the former hasn't given reparations in a long time, although... Ukraine is asking for it in its ICJ application. If you get an international judgment against Russia saying you are owe Ukraine a certain sum of money for this, then it actually becomes a lot easier. Um, foreign judgments we can enforce pretty easily. We don't usually do it with international judgments through domestic legal proceedings, but I think we could. I think there might be international law arguments that might get around immunity issues that would be an obstacle otherwise um, relating to countermeasures. But, you know, it's a complicated picture here. And the, the big concern is that those proceedings are probably going to take too long to get to that sort of outcome given the policy needs for Ukraine in the short term. Also, there's jurisdictional reasons why at least the ICJ proceeding might not actually get to the point of reparation. So it's a real question that's happening. I think it's debated, but it's not imminent as of yet. So I make it a rule that whenever I have Molly Reynolds and Quinta Jurassic in a room, real or virtual, uh, and they're talking about 
January 6th and or Congress, I stop talking as quickly as possible because I want to know what they think. So I'm just going to go right into it. And maybe this is a dumb question, but it's actually one I've really been puzzling about. Molly, what are the goals of these hearings? Yeah, uh, it's not a dumb question. My personal policy on questions are the only dumb question is the one you don't ask. And I think it's important to think about the answer to this from like, what does the committee think its goals are versus like, what are the goals that um, many other folks might be trying to hang on to the committee? And I think for the committee's uh, purpose, the goal is to like tell the story of what happened before and on January 6th to the best of their ability in as kind of clear and compelling a way that they can. And part of like why this is my read of what the committee wants to do here is because if you go back to sometime late last year, late in 2021, uh, I think it was at actually one of the markups of one of the um, contempt citations. Um, I don't remember whose, and we'll come back to that later. Uh, Betty Thompson said that, you know, what the committee was doing was it was going to gather all of this information, and then it was going to tell the world about it. It wasn't going to tell the world about what it knew until it had the whole story. And, you know, Quinta and I have been saying for a while that this created a trade-off for the committee. You know, how long do you try to get the whole story before you tell the world about it, given that there's a ticking clock here? And so I really do think that that's kind of what their, what their goal is to like stitch together this compelling narrative, both for the moment and for the historical record. Um, and I think that's part of why they're doing the hearings in like a concentrated time block of a couple of weeks. When you look at the, uh, it was reported there will be two witnesses, um, at least at the first hearing on Thursday, um, one of whom is a filmmaker who is embedded with the the Proud Boys. As Quinta likes to say, why why would you let someone film you committing seditious conspiracy? I don't know. And then um, a Capitol Police officer who was one of the first, um, named Caroline Edwards, who was one of the first uh, folks sort of to be injured by the insurrectionists. And so I think that this is sort of, again, a start to this, this um, effort to like tell a story. What I don't think these hearings are going to sort of somehow bring is like some sense of real accountability for what happened. Like that's, that's really not what congressional hearings are necessarily good for generally. And it's just not what this particular set of hearings, I think is going to do a particularly good job at. But I'm curious to hear um, Quinto's thoughts on, on this question. Yeah, first on the on the documentarian, I think this is perhaps the most high profile example I've ever seen of what we might call the Stringer Bell rule from The Wire, which is why are you taking notes on a invective, <laughs> criminal conspiracy? Why would you let someone film you? I It is truly beyond me. And I, I kind of hope that somebody asks the filmmaker at the hearing. Um, I, I do. I mean, I second everything that, that Molly said, obviously. I do think that the committee is walking a really difficult line here between kind of hyping things up enough that people will want to watch, but not hyping them up so much that people are disappointed when, you know, they can't unveil something that is more explosive than Donald Trump live tweeting during an attempted coup, how great he thinks that attempted coup is. I mean, I I genuinely can't think of anything more shocking than that. And we've already kind of accepted it and moved on. So there's there's not going to be anything that is 
worse than that. The committee has said that, you know, they have new details. They're going to share new information. What information we shall see. I do think it's interesting that they've clearly put a lot of thought into the rollout. Like Molly mentioned, they're kind of rolling out these hearings in bite-sized portions. They're holding the first and last hearing in prime time, 8 p.m., so everyone can can tune in. It's on Thursday, not Wednesday, so you don't have to miss the NBA game. The uh, New York Times reported that uh, the committee brought on the former president of ABC News to sort of help produce the hearings. They're booking, you know, appearances on the Sunday shows. So they're clearly thinking about, you know, how do we break through a news environment that is really scattered and frenetic? You know, given that if you want to compare this to, say, the Watergate hearings, that is an era in which Congress functioned very differently, as Molly likes to point out. It's also an era in which the news environment functioned very differently. There wasn't Fox. There wasn't the Internet. Fox, I should note, will not be airing the Thursday hearing. I, I believe they're the only cable network that has has made that decision. So I'm definitely going to be watching to see sort of how they're thinking about pulling that off and what what steps they take and how successful they are. I do think, as Molly says, you know, this is not... I highly doubt that this changes anyone's opinion. It might give people, you know, people who have not been paying close attention a better sense of what happened, kind of remind them of the events, which are, after all, a year and a half ago. I'm sure it will flesh out some details that remain fuzzy because there are many details we still don't know, as we were all reminded by the indictment for seditious conspiracy or preceding indictment for seditious conspiracy of a number of Proud Boys earlier this week. So I think, as I said, it's kind of a, a balance between keeping our minds open and also tempering our expectations accordingly. Can I ask you all a little bit? I want to delve in a little bit more on audience here and who the intended audience is, because the strategy that you guys have mentioned already is so interesting to me, right? Because on the one hand, Molly, I took what you, I think what you say is correct in that it seems like one of the bigger audiences here is actually posterity, right? We're trying to clarify the historical record and put together some sort of product that's going to memorialize that. But that's not really what's being rolled out this week. I suspect we're going to see that in some sort of big report. And hopefully, as I've mentioned before in the podcast, like a giant butt ton of documents that are going to get dropped into the public arenas that people can crowdsource and dig into them over weeks and months to come. That's a, that's yeah, a technical a term, guys. I almost said a dirtier <laughs> word than I didn't, <laughs> but I kind of regret it now. But you know, those are like the posterity element. Here we have like a primetime presentation. So obviously, it's to me at least, it seems to strongly suggest it's aimed for a more immediate audience. Um, with a more immediate impact. Like you wouldn't bring in a TV director for something that's happening 20 years down the line and that you're primarily putting together for historians and other people who are probably are more comfortable dealing with text, right? Instead, you're like tr- clearly trying to pitch this to someone. Now, is that pitch to, you know, Merrick Garland, the Justice Department, about digging deeper into certain people, whether it's Donald Trump, whether it's other people around Donald Trump, maybe it's still a weird way to go about it. Obviously, there's like a public audience here, but is it, swing voters? Is it individual members of Congress? Is it the media, you know, that's going to be driving the discussion around these issues leading into the elections? I'm not, I'm just not clear actually like who the target for this is. And maybe they don't know either, or maybe it's all of them are taking kind of a, well, everybody's going to watch the TV at least who's in this kind of elite circles. Let's try and get it out there and make it as consumable as we can. But it doesn't clearly line up to me to how this actually is supposed to result in an impact that they clearly seem to have because they put so many resources and thought into how they're pushing this forward. 
Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and on the sort of first point about like the goal of the ultimate effort of the committee to be sort of something for posterity, something for um, the historical record, um, I'll just return to a point that uh, maybe I've made on this podcast before, um, certainly I've made in other contexts, which is that because the committee is the only body that is engaging in a public investigation of what happened on January 6th that is this broad, it is sort of bearing a responsibility that in at least my ideal world, like an independent commission should have borne. And so in terms of like creating that giant historical record, we know that there is um, a grand jury that is issuing subpoenas um, and receiving, I think, testimony and documents like we might never learn more about what they're doing than what we know now. Maybe we will. Um, it sort of, I guess, all depends on like what they uncover. But there is a world where the only real record we have of what happened um, is what this committee can put together. And so when I when I think about sort of its like big mission, I think that's really important um, to keep in mind. In terms of the audience for the hearings itself, um, it's a little bit all of the above. I do think that primarily the kind of target audience are people who are politically interested and who were sort of shocked and outraged by what happened on January 6th, but whose attention has faded from the kinds of ins and outs of like Mark Meadows got a subpoena and then he didn't comply. And like this person was spotted going into the O'Neill House office building for a deposition. And like, and I actually think the people who have followed the story with that level of detail are somewhat likely to come out of these hearings disappointed about kind of what they bring. Um, because again, I don't think their ultimate goal is like, I think we will learn new things, you know, even Quinta and I, who I think are in like the 98th percentile of January 6th committee watchers um, will learn new things. But I just, I think that in terms of like an outside audience, it really is kind of people who are politically engaged but not people who have been following it really closely, and then also not people whose minds will not be changed by whatever the committee says in these hearings. Mo Molly, I, I hate to break it to you. You are not in the 98th percentile. You and Quint are in the 99 point trailing nine percentile. You are, you are way to the right of the bell curve of people who know about this and are into it. But I think that gets that gets to Molly's point, though, right? I mean, I will say um, all all this reminds me of the great deleted clickhole article in the depths of the Mueller investigation about how, and I will quote, this morning, special counsel Robert Mueller dropped a legal bombshell on the administration by filing court documents announcing a plea bargain with Trump's confidence lawyer's friend's associate, Gorpman. Gorpman's testimony could spell major trouble for Bleemer, which must be terrifying for Trump. So as I mentioned, this this un, uh, clickhole article was sadly deleted, but I've come to think of it as, as defining the Gorpman-Bleemer problem, which is that if you are super, super deep in this, every new twist and turn is like very interesting and exciting. But if you are not super deep in it, it becomes completely incomprehensible. And so I do think that the committee's job here, as Molly says, is to kind of set things out anew for people who might care, but also like have a lot of other things happening in their lives um, and need a sort of overall refresher of where we're at and what the committee has found. So let's say we are some of those people who have been watching this with an interest, but not like that closeness that you all have and a lot of the, the close watchers have. What is it we should be looking for going into these hearings? Like, what are the big chunks of new information that you all think are most relevant? We've seen a lot of kind of projections back before we saw 
our colleague at Brookings Institution, Norm Eisen, came out with a report kind of saying, here's the elements that we see in the evidence and kind of pointing to areas where the hearing could strengthen the evidence for uh, the idea that President Trump was involved in a criminal conspiracy um, to defraud the United States, right? Then we saw our, our colleagues and friends at Just Security and at Protect Democracy release this kind of like useful little like bingo card of saying, here are some gaps that we think might get filled in in the, in the record kind of in a couple of different areas. But both of those strike me as like optimistic and particularly, you know, kind of more criminal law oriented, which, which again, I don't know if the Justice Department is who you're speaking to on primetime at 8 p.m. on a Thursday. Like, what are the big new piece of information we should be looking out for to say, oh, like, this is interesting, this is new um, to come from this? Or is it really not about revelatory information? Is it going to be rehashed through the folks who've been following this? Is this about framing, packaging, and turning into visual audio kind of sound bites? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And to piggyback on what on what Scott said, is there any reason to think that this might move the political needle at all? You know, the the reality is that the Democrats, at least if you believe the polls and history and basic political fundamentals are likely going to lose the House, which means that the January 6th committee is going to end come January 2023. Um, you know, is there a universe in which the hearings can shake the kind of Democrats out of their political doldrums, um, which would be helpful, of course, to the Democrats, right? Probably something that Liz Cheney doesn't necessarily care about directly, but also would allow the committee, uh, assuming she doesn't lose her primary, um, uh, would allow the committee to keep doing its work because otherwise it's it's turning into a pumpkin in, in you know eight months. So I don't think that's the right question to ask, in part because one, like a card carrying political scientist that I am, I should say, like everything you've said about the fundamentals in American history is correct um, and suggests that the Democrats who have a very narrow margin in the House anyway will lose that majority. Um, and so it's not short of like the January 6th committee lowering gas prices. It's not entirely clear to me what it could do to really like alter the outcome of the midterms in a like big fundamental way. And again, at the end of the day, like that's not the I think the lens through which we should be judging this committee's success or failure. In terms of like what I am interested in potentially learning more about, uh, I do think again that most of what will happen is just sort of a packaging of information. Um, there'll be some new information, but it will be really about constructing this narrative. The thing that I really 
still have a lot of questions about is like, to what extent were any um, sitting members of Congress involved in what happened? Um, Because most of my time is spent thinking about kind of how to get the Congress working better on a whole host of dimensions. And one of the greatest challenges in doing that over the past 18 months is the fact that there, there are people who believe, I think not wrongly, that some of their colleagues were comfortable with the idea of other people coming into their place of work and trying to kill them. And that that is a, that like, that's a huge obstacle to productively governing the country. And so I think to the extent that we learn more about that, like that's really important to me and how I think about sort of the functioning of American democracy. But um, Quinta, I'm curious what your thoughts are. I mean, at risk of, you know, sounding like Donald Rumsfeld, we we don't know what we don't know, right? Um, I do think that the committee has been pretty careful in what information it releases to the public through court filings, through press releases, uh, through tweets, and pretty much a black box when it wants to be. Um, so I think it's it's difficult to say, you know, what new material they have just because they've played their cards so close to their chest. I mean, to kind of balance out Molly's point, I do think, you know, one of the obviously the the big remaining questions is what was happening at the White House during that period when the attack was ongoing on Congress and Trump was uh, tweeting through it, as they say. That we'll kind of get to that in our next segment, to what extent the Justice Department has or hasn't stymied the committee and its ability to conduct uh, that part of the investigation. But I do think that's one of the big remaining questions. And also uh, in a way that I don't think is quite true, perhaps for the question of the involvement of members of Congress, uh, one of the questions that it's going to be hardest to answer. Before we leave this topic, I I do want to make sure we talk a little bit about how these hearings are likely to be received by Republicans, conservatives. You know, if if you believe like like I do that the sort of single most determinant, single most important determinant of America's democratic future is whether or not there is a sane center right party in this country, um, it is uh, to me quite disturbing, as you Quinta pointed out earlier, that Fox uh, will not be actually airing the uh, committee hearings. Um, at least not on its main channel, Fox Business will be doing it. But on its main channel, you'll still have uh, Sean Hannity and uh, Laura Ingram and, of course, Tucker Carlson of the infamous insane Patriot Purge documentary spouting whatever you know, big lie, great replacement stuff uh, as this hearing is going on. This is, of course, in uh, pretty stark contrast to Fox's wall-to-wall is maybe an understatement coverage of Benghazi. And so I, I'm just curious you know, what you all make of this as an early indication of whether this committee hearing will have any effect on whether it's Republican elites or probably more importantly, the Republican rank and file voters who have to choose how much they care about uh, American democracy going forward. And actually, let me add one one aspect onto that question uh, that I think is related is that we, of course, have a number, not many, but a number of kind of beleaguered Republicans who actually did vote to in support of either the the committee or in prior efforts previous to the committee, the effort to establish an independent commission or to impeach Donald Trump. Liz Cheney is kind of the most prominent of these who's facing a very, very uphill primary battle and is being kind of targeted by former President Trump. Do we have a sense about how these people are framing the work of the committee and how these public hearings can play into or might be able to play into to support that framing in a way that you know, mitigate some of the damage to them or maybe even plays into that narrative. I'm just kind of curious, because that strikes me as a little 
little difficult game there, but those are the people who you do still need in the Republican Party kind of still speaking up on these points for the reasons Alan's noted. Um, and so I'm curious if this is a, maybe a, a way to throw them a bone a bit or at least help them frame it in a way that, that, that will aid them a bit politically as we get into this election season. I mean, I think it's telling on that last point that so there are two Republicans on the committee. Adam Kinzinger is retiring and Liz Cheney has taken sort of a like effort, like just like this is I think this is the right thing to do. She's um, burning gonna, it down on her way out. I mean, I don't I'm not an expert in Wyoming politics. I don't know if she'll um, if she'll win um, reelection, but she's clearly decided that um, whatever is happening and her and sort of being front and center on this committee is more important than her sort of personal political future in the House. I mean, she got booted from the House Republican leadership about a year ago for her kind of uh, aggressive stance in favor of investigating um, January 6th. And so I don't I don't know, Scott, that there's a lot that will come out of this that I will find like encouraging for how future folks in the molds of Cheney or Kinsinger want are going to kind of build their careers in the Republican Party. But I mean, on on the sort of point about Fox not covering or not carrying the hearings um, live. One thing I um, in the in the department of like ways we should adjust our expectations for what's going to happen. I do actually think that like the hearings are going to be more serious and like they're going to be less like sideshow things that we've come to expect from high profile congressional hearings because for all intents and purposes there is not a majority side and a minority side there's one side and they're all rowing the boat in the same direction and so we're not going to have you know we're not going to have like weird procedural objections from Jim Jordan 30 seconds after Jerry Nadler starts speaking that then like derail into like people not knowing parliamentary procedure like it's just it's just that's not going to be part of what happens and so i think that that again like that's not a reason that fox shouldn't be carrying the hearings live but it's like it's just a i think it's going to be a different kind of content than we've sort of come to expect from some of these very high profile hearings in recent years well, going from what we're going to hear at the hearing starting on Thursday to things we're not going to hear from the January 6th committee time in the near future, we saw a set of decisions come down for the Justice Department this past week, uh, focusing on the question of contempt of Congress. Uh, we've seen a number of people who refused to cooperate with the January 6th committee's investigation that the January 6th committee then referred to the Justice Department for prosecution under contempt of Congress, a criminal statute that Congress enacted where if you intentionally interfere with the work of Congress, um, you can be criminally prosecuted for it. The Justice Department came out and decided that, in fact, they are going to prosecute one former Trump administration official for their refusal to cooperate with the committee. That's Peter Navarro. But they are not going to pro prosecute two other Trump administration officials. That's former Chief of Staff Mark, Mark Meadows and former Deputy Chief of Staff Dan Scavino. Without much explanation as of yet, the January 6th committee's reaction, um, at least the kind of public reaction that I've seen, uh, welcomed the decision to prosecute Navarro, essentially asked for a great more explanation as to why Meadows and Scavino aren't being prosecuted, wasn't quite as far as they might have gone in condemning that decision, uh, although it certainly did not greet it wholeheartedly. But it does raise this interesting question. Why did the Justice Department take this different tack in these cases? And what does it tell us about Congress's ability to use its subpoena power to get information out of former White House officials or other associates of the president and the executive branch in future investigations? 
Quinta, why don't I hand it over to you first to get us started on this topic? What should we be making of this? I don't think that this decision on the part of the Justice Department to not pursue charges against Meadows and Scavino was particularly surprising, frankly. We've run a fair amount of stuff on these cases in, in lawfare um, from the, the great Jonathan Schaub, among others, pointing out that, you know, of the former Trump administration officials and Trump advisors who were uh held in contempt of Congress, who the committee was looking for information from, Meadows really has quite a strong claim of executive privilege here. You know, this is a situation where, you know, Bannon is kind of throwing around executive privilege quite wildly without really having much of a leg to stand on, given that he was an an outside advisor at the time. And it's, you know, his his advice was related to an event concerning Trump's re-election rather than presidential duties. Um, Meadows was the chief of staff. You know, if you want to talk about what executive privilege is for, the chief of staff is really at the dead center. And so even though there is a ruling from the D.C. Circuit um, sort of questioning the extent to which Trump can invoke executive privilege here, Meadows can say, you know, I was unsure whether or not I was shielded by executive privilege. I was unsure whether or not I was covered by the testimonial immunity for presidential advisors that flows from that, according to the Office of Legal Counsel. So I think that this is really a situation where the Justice Department has kind of made its bed and now is lying in it in the sense that Meadows was able to point to these memos from the Office of Legal Counsel establishing what I would argue is an extraordinarily broad understanding of executive privilege and testimonial immunity. And that makes it kind of awkward to then prosecute the guy for relying on that material. Now, there are ways that they could have gotten out of that. And we've we've run pieces on Lawfare also about this um, from Albert Alshuler, which I'd, I'd recommend that people take a look at. But the long and the short of it is that I would argue, you know, what we're seeing here is kind of the inevitable conflict of interest that arises when the entity that is responsible for, you know, protecting presidential power in this, you know, this instance, the Justice Department and OLC within it, is also the entity that is responsible for prosecuting people who refuse to give information to Congress on the basis of that same interpretation of executive power. And so for that reason, I would say disappointing, perhaps not surprising. Um, Molly, I know you have thoughts on this from the Congress perspective. Well, I mean, the way that Scott Frank, like ended his question was, what does this say about Congress's ability to get information from people who don't want to comply with Congress? And my answer is, answer is nothing good. And I think that in some ways, it's like the it's just the next step in sort of what we've learned over the past, certainly like the past five years, but really, I think going back a little bit longer than that about Congress's limits in enforcing requests for information. So if we sort of start with like the the Trump years where, you know, Congress wants information from all kinds of people in the executive branch, um, including uh, some of the, uh, you know, like connected to putting a citizenship question on the census. And there's a whole, there's a, a whole list of, of them and they don't get it. And so then we say, well, they can't use criminal contempt to try to enforce these subpoenas because the OLC has taken this position that the um, Justice Department will not prosecute someone for criminal contempt of Congress if the person is um, is acting at the, the direction of, uh, of a sitting president. And so 
criminal contempt is not an option. So then we pursue, uh, we sort of see Congress try to pursue compliance, uh, try to get uh, individuals to comply with their subpoenas using um, civil uh, litigation, which like takes a really long time. Again, in the in the case of several Trump administration experiences, is like sometimes works, sometimes doesn't, but always is always slow moving. Um, I'd also note that um, one of the one of the differences between pursuing criminal contempt of Congress and pursuing compliance with the subpoena through civil litigation is that pursuing criminal contempt is is punitive in nature. It's not ultimately designed to get the witness to comply um, to the extent that. It is meant to induce compliance as like as a threat. It's like you don't want to be held in criminal contempt of Congress. You don't want to sort of incur whatever the penalties are under a statute. And so I guess just for me, it's like another indication of how limited um, Congress's power is here when Congress has in some ways like this is, I think, for me, this is mostly about positions the executive branch has taken. But like, there are things that Congress could do to stand up for itself. I have long been skeptical about the return of Congress's inherent contempt power. Um, I have mostly joked, but like less a joke now than I jo- than a year ago that like this is what's going to turn me into an inherent contempt person. But I just think that um, at the end of the day, like Congress cannot put itself in a situation or be put in a situation where it can only get in information when it asks the Department of Justice for help and the Department of Justice is willing to do it. Scott, tell us why this is all fine. I'm not going to go quite that far. I, I want to delve into one issue first, but then I do want to come back to this idea of what Congress can do is I want to dig in a little bit why the different outcome in these cases. There is like a stronger executive privilege argument for Meadows and probably Scavino too because they're chief of staff, but like Navarro is still an executive officer, the president employee, probably can make a lot of the same arguments. I'm not sure just the difference in their job functions is enough to say, why is the Justice Department taking such a different tack? It strikes me that a big distinguishing factor, which actually fits into a little bit about both how the courts have approached executive privilege and how OLC kind of has in some of its softer executive privilege modes, usually under Democratic administrations, which is uh, this idea about actually engaging in the good faith discussion. You know, criminal contempt has a strong mens rea requirement. It has to be like intentional and deliberate. And the big difference between Navarro and Meadows and Scavino is Meadows and Scavino engage in long negotiations about potential cooperation. Meadows did hand over a set of documents, whereas Navarro didn't kind of stonewall from the outset. Um, And that to me strikes me as like the strongest way of distinguishing if you think about this idea that, well, okay, maybe there is some legitimate constitutional zone of these people's information they have that cannot be reached, but it's probably not all consuming. The courts have consistently ruled against executive branch when it's tried to assert a categorical bar to testimony by executive branch officials. We know that from the Gann litigation. We know that from Harriet Miter's litigation. So instead, there is a sort of gray area here. So I kind of suspect a lot of this is about mens rea and confidence that they can show Navarro never really even tried to engage the concept that there were some of these questions that were not protected by executive privilege, which seems clear, whereas Meadows and Scavino arguably did. The problem with that, I think, though, is that like, what do you have to do to arguably show that you were in good faith saying, hey, like, are we actually negotiating this to get out of the realm of potential prosecution? You know, without some lot more clarification from the executive branch, like it seems pretty easy to be able to say, oh, yeah, I'll talk to you guys. I'm never going to concede anything, but I'll keep talking to you, keep talking to you. And then all of a sudden criminal contempt never becomes available. So, you know, my hope is that like maybe if there's some logic like that behind this decision, there's going to be an OLC opinion coming forward saying like, here's what does and doesn't 
you know, show an intent to actually cooperate potentially while still respecting potential executive privilege concerns. Um, and here's what clearly is obstruction to the point of warning criminal prosecution. But then that might not be really satisfying. In terms of what Congress can do, I will say before we get to inherent contempt, I actually think there is something that Congress can do before that if you get Congress as an institution on board, not just an individual chamber. And that's like really the threshold here. Well, I think you would need that more or less to really set up an effective inherent contempt mechanism anyway. Well, I could be wrong about that. But I think you would. Is that, you know, Congress controls jurisdiction and timelines. Congress actually has not a bad record in the courts on actually winning the merits of these cases. The problem is the timeline compared to the political timeline Congress operates under. And Congress can change that. So I don't think there's a reason why Congress couldn't say, hey, look, any effort to enforce a congressional subpoena goes to a three you know, judge panel on the D.C. Circuit immediately, skips the trial court. Then maybe you want it to be appealed in bank because the D.C. Circuit, frankly, is probably more friendly to Congress on these issues than the Supreme Court is, but maybe not. Or maybe you want to go straight to the Supreme Court. But you can set timelines, jurisdictional, adjust the jurisdiction, make these things a lot more enforceable in the courts than you actually are. Right now, you're really battling the fact that you're relying on the Justice Department and then relying on the courts going about their kind of conventional speed and with all the discretion they have to slow things down on tricky issues, which is their not surprising inclination. So I, I, that strikes me as one area where I think Congress could do a lot more for itself to make these things more enforceable. Actually, has done a little bit of that on the Senate side, not at all on the House side, as came up in the, some of the early McGahn litigation. So, you know, I think there are other formulas here before we have to go to like Congress kind of like going rogue in a certain way or going on its own. But um, you know, all of it requires Congress to act as a body, and that's really a cha- the challenge here. That's a really high bar. We haven't seen Congress willing to to do to defend its institutional equities in really a long time. So I, I think this detailed discussion is really useful, but I also want to just take a moment to think about how the administration, and in particular OLC, and in particular the career folks at OLC, should think about the arguments and the opinions that they have issued and will, of course, continue to issue about these questions of executive power and to what extent Congress can demand information from uh, the president. Because in a sense, OLC's aggressive, and I agree with you, Quinta, that sometimes it's hyper or at least over-aggressive, interpretations of executive power are in some sense sort of in line with a particular vision of the separation of powers, where each institution aggressively defends its own prerogatives, and you rely on strong institutions to kind of go at it and create these sorts of political accommodations. Now, that is still the case within the executive branch, which despite there being very large differences between Republican and Democratic presidents, nevertheless, continuously seek to basically expand or at least preserve the scope of executive power. That is not at all the case in Congress, in which the separation of powers has entirely broken down. Most members of Congress seem to have very little regard for their own institutional interests. Certainly, I think less regard than, you know, people like Molly have for Congress's institutional interests. And it's basically just entirely partisan. So then you get this interesting question of, you know, even if it'd be better for the executive branch to robustly defend its own prerogatives, Congress to robustly defend its own prerogatives, and for them to go into conflict when necessary, and for Congress to use its you know, powers of the purse or, you know, whatever it is to make the ex- executive branch's life miserable. Is the right second best option for the executive branch to weaken its own power, given that it needs to do that because otherwise the the mismatch between the executive and Congress is too high? And even if you're a Democrat in the White House now, you know that at some point, right, um, the Republicans are going to take power in the White House and you want that Congress, which 
maybe will be democratic one day again, uh, we will see to have control. I mean, I'm talking in circles because I, I don't really know what the, what the resolution here is, but it seems like a very difficult question. And, and I do wonder, at least I hope that someone in OLC is thinking about this on the more macro level. I will say this fits in the bucket that listeners have heard me complain about before is that there's a lot of weird, bad OLC opinions out there. This administration has not done anything about yet. Uh, and I really hope including some on absolute testimonial immunity, one might point Indeed, out the courts have done a number on those, but, but the executive branch has not bothered to follow suit as of yet, at least officially. So hopefully, you know, the administration is still teeing up a plan to do that at some point uh, while they're still in office. Uh, and this might be a good forcing mechanism again, because I think with absent judge got some sort of guidance, um, you're really setting up some pretty perverse incentives people for people around this issue in terms of when they have to cooperate with Congress. But again, Congress changes hands. Maybe that's there's a little strategic ambiguity there. That's that's for good reason. Yeah. So I just this I actually think is a good place to a good place to say something I think is important to maybe end this discussion, which is that one of the arguments that uh, folks have made about sort of why potentially the Justice Department has taken the position that it has vis-a-vis um, Meadows and Scavino is that they are concerned about sort of what a different Congress in Republican hands would try to do. And like my response to that is like Republicans are going to do that anyway. Um, I mean, this is if I have learned nothing from being a quasi-professional Mitch McConnell watcher for um, most of my career, it's that when the policy and this is not uh, it is is a particular feature of McConnell's Senate leadership, but it's not exclusive to McConnell or frankly to the Republicans. But I think that in this particular context, the idea that like Republicans would will if they control the House, will try to, you know, weaponize various powers that they have against people in the executive branch and or Hunter Biden. Like, I think that's going to happen regardless of what happens at this moment with Meadows and Scavino. Well, folks, we will have to leave the conversation there for this week, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder on until we are able to get back to your ears next week. Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So I have a sort of double slash blended, I have a two for one object lesson, which is uh, a book and the platform on which I am reading or more specifically listening to the book. So the platform, the app is called Libby, L-I-B-B-Y. It is amazing. It allows you to borrow audiobooks for free from your local library. Not just audiobooks. No, sorry, you're right. Well. Not just audiobooks, but I, I use it mostly for audiobooks. Man, it is so much cheaper than Audible, which is so expensive. And so I've been just just grinding through so many audiobooks on my walks with my dog and my kid. And the one that I'm currently listening to, which is, I guess, my main object lesson, is a history book. It's by Bruce Levine, who's a historian. It's called The Fall of the House of Dixie. It's basically a history of the Civil War, but from the perspective of antebellum and and then, I guess, you know, Civil War era Southern society. Um, I, I mean, I think if you're an American, you should read a book about the Civil War once every three years or so. It's kind of the most important thing that has happened in our history. I think actually even more important in a sense than the revolution. It just explains so much. And I think that although Civil War histories appropriately focus on the war part of it, I think the more important element ultimately was the destruction of antebellum Southern culture and civilization, right? The slave civilization. It's an amazing book. It's, it's, hard to, to listen to in, in many ways because it you know talks about slavery and, and the horrors of that and at the and at the same time I will say it gives me <laughs> comfort is not the right word um, but it does I think put some of our contemporary disputes into some perspective you know I, I think 
I, I think the more you read, or at least the more I read about the Civil War, right, and I try to read like a Civil War book every couple of years, the more I think that the talk today about Civil War is just very overinflated. I mean, it, it's just not the same order of magnitude. There is no issue like slavery today. There is no, there's no sectional divide in the same way that there was at the past. That doesn't mean that American democracy is doing well or anything. Obviously, we're all freaked out about it as we should be. But I think that reading about the Civil War is really important because it reminds you of the most important event in American history and, and the ramifications of that and the, the consequences of slavery and sort of all of that. And at the same time, I think puts today's conflicts in a certain perspective. It's also an, it's an amazingly interesting book. So uh, Follow the House of Dixie by uh, Bruce Levine is my object lesson. I've never had to use the finger on an object lesson before, Alan. That's a deep dive into this book, <laughs> but I'm, I'm excited about it. It's good. A really good book. Quinta, I, why don't you uh, tell us your object lesson for today? Well, first, I want to say I think that reading a Civil War back every three years is a requirement of dadhood. So I'm, I'm glad you've gotten that under your belt. <laughs> um, I also have an object lesson that has to do with things being bad in the past as well. So I have been doing some researching, some writing on uh, professional discipline for misinformation. And in the course of that, I uh, discovered just some truly wonderful examples of extreme political polarization in the professions um, among other spaces in the early republic. So I was reading a, a paper that had some examples of taverns in the early 1800s where they would say no federalists need apply. So if you're a member of the Federalist Party, you can't stay there. A Boston businessman who moved his business because he was a Democratic Republican and he couldn't get Federalist customers to, to visit him. A physician in Massachusetts who was a Jeffersonian was excommunicated from his church. A lawyer who was denied admission to the bar in Connecticut because, and I quote, the Federalist-dominated examining committee had heard rumors that he held Jacobin sympathies. And a doctor elsewhere in Connecticut who could not get any Federalist patients to attend his clinic because he was also a Jeffersonian. So allow this to be a lesson to us all. It turns out that the rancor of today's politics is not actually new and that it has been this way from literally the beginning of the Republic. Well, for my object lesson this week, I am going to recommend a film, a documentary that uh, I watched kind of to my surprise uh, that we settled on this with my wife this past weekend and ended up really enjoying, even though it's quite out of my lane, I thought passed along. That's a documentary called Val, which is this interesting uh, biography put together by Val Kilmer, the kind of actor heartthrob you may know from your childhood if you're a product of the 80s and 90s. Um, certainly a major figure in my kind of like childhood movie watching experiences, where evidently throughout his entire childhood, he has basically carried a handy cam with him around with him everywhere and has literally like three storage units of old footage through his really like quite amazing acting career he's had for decades in Hollywood, including like clips of Kevin Bacon and Sean Penn when they were all, you know, 22 year old actors on Broadway and all his co-stars on Top Gun and a bunch of other people. Um, that's really interesting to watch. And if you like pop culture, which I don't always, but sometimes like enjoy historical dives in pop culture. It's interesting, but it's particularly poignant because Kilmer was diagnosed with throat cancer about four or five years ago, um, has undergone, he's a Christian scientist, so actually didn't undergo the conventional medical treatments for a long time. I think eventually he did, although it's a little, I'm not sure the details are entirely out on that. 
ended up losing his voice uh, and also clearly like is a little, both a little older and I think has suffered physically from the treatments that's come with his cancer treatment. And so the documentary follows him in his day-to-day current life, um, which involves a lot of conventions because that's how he's making money because he's in a rough financial straits. So he does a lot of signing of autographs where he's unable to speak. He speaks with the assistance of a kind of like, uh, he has a, I think it's called tracheotomy. So he has to speak with the kind of a, a vibrator on his throat or by holding over, holding, holding something over his, the hole in his throat that he usually breathes through. It is like a really, really compelling portrait. Uh, and also talks a lot about his family, his kids. His son actually narrates it kind of in his voice for him. It sounds a lot like a young Val Kilmer. And it's just really fascinating because it's not just a story about like a, an actor and his career. It's actually really about like life and mortality and parenthood and familyhood and all these different steps this person has gone through, uh, which is something, as we talked about earlier, I think about a lot these days, my own mortality, those of the mortality people around me. Um, it was really interesting and contemplative and having all this footage, which captures so many little moments of this person throughout years and years of his high profile career, is just makes for really fascinating watching and is really touching. So uh, I, I really can't endorse it enough. I thought it was a great watch and I encourage you all to check it out if you need a break from from national security and and, and other more relevant topics. Molly, why don't you bring us home? Sure. So I'll say I contemplated using as my object lesson a full recasting of the January 6th committee members as Muppets, <sighs> inspired by Scott's title for the second segment. I'm not that creative, so I'll commend it to you, Ratsack listeners. You and me, Molly. We're doing this on Twitter. We have a new assignment. But... That is that was my rejected object lesson. My actual object lesson is a television recommendation um, on on Netflix, which is the return of the Danish political drama Borgen. So um, this is a show that there were three seasons of about a decade ago. Netflix has done, I I guess it's a reboot. Um, I'll admit I have not yet watched the new season. I'm a huge fan of the original season, so I'm very excited that it's back. It's again sort of a, a Danish political drama. I will say uh, two things. One is that you, like me, may enjoy learning about what like English language words have made it into Danish language for talking about politics. The person um, on the, on the show who's like the communications guru um, is referred to as a spin doctor. Like that's the that's the word that they've imported into Danish to, to do this. I'll also um, commend you to imagine me about five years ago needing to go to a meeting with a bunch of members of the Danish parliament, not knowing anything about Danish politics and trying to map on the like fictionalized political parties in the show to Denmark's real political parties in preparation for this meeting, walking into this meeting and having the person hosting the meeting say, you might be familiar with the Danish parliament from the television show Morgan and me having to be, yes, in fact, that is how anything I know about um, Danish politics uh, is is from watching that. So uh, uh, take all that context with you as you uh, watch either, I believe the first three seasons are also on Netflix or the new season that is a reboot. Well, for better or for worse, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other fantastic podcast series, including our new special series on the programmatic failures that led us to leave so many partners behind in Afghanistan entitled Allies. Be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon while you're at it for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. 
Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan, and are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quintan Allen, and our special guest, Molly Reynolds, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, <sighs> goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.